0: Welcome to Redefining the Good Life, the podcast that calls BS on the rat race of modern life and helps you finally have the courage to go after your dreams. I'm your host, Aishan Karaduman, a.k.a. The Omnivorist. I'm a life coach and functional nutritional therapy practitioner. Using a blend of mindset tools and ancestral nutrition, as well as understanding just what it means to be human today, I'm here to help you change the trajectory of your life. Another future is possible, my friend. Welcome on board. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Redefining the Good Life. Today, I want to talk to you about basically how I came to think about the things I think about these days and how I came to these conclusions around human health and happiness. Basically, as if you're asking me the question of, just what happened to you, (laughs) Aishen. Today's my attempt to answer that question, basically. Now, I have known for a very long time that things were a little bit off with our current setup. Now, going back to my teenage years, At this point, I still lived in Turkey. I would say what it started with at the beginning was, you know, I started noticing some cracks around our national mythology. Now, I grew up in Turkey. It's a very nationalistic country, which, like a lot of other countries, um, it doesn't make it that different. And, you know, the nation state kind of being the thing nowadays, that's the way we organize ourselves for the most part in the world today. And so these national mythologies, you know, they're everywhere. And so I started noticing that things were kind of not exactly as maybe we, what we had been taught at school. And then when I went off to college in the States, um, you know, at that point, I had made 180. I think I told you about this before, and I actually became a philosophy major. And those days, I had some amazing, amazing moments in my philosophy classes. And I specifically had an amazing mentor, amazing philosophy professor, at the first college that I went to. And I remember she started, like she kind of allowed us to put so much of the pieces of the puzzle together. And I know one of the things that she would say was that everything is connected. And really, she would take kind of the entire history of not just philosophy, but almost like humanity, and really allow us to make a lot of connections between things. And I remember her saying, that she saw a graffiti, I think this was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that said, convenience kills. So, as you can tell, like even back then, I was really invited to think hard about these things and that how our modern choices were somehow doing harm to the world. But for the most part, this knowledge for me was pretty much an intellectual understanding. But when I had babies, when I became a mother, that's when all of it really started to hit home. And that's when it really started to become an embodied understanding and not just something I knew intellectually, theoretically, but I felt in my bones, I felt the impact, I started to understand exactly where things went wrong and what the impacts were in a really concrete way. Now I already talked, um, told you my story um, at the beginning about you know my first pregnancy and how I started to totally nerd out on everything about pregnancy and nutrition and wellness and child rearing and all that good stuff. And um, and one thing I noticed, especially when it comes to nutrition and pregnancy, is that you know the odd thing was that what they tell pregnant women about food now. I don't know if you've ever been pregnant or if you have a partner who's been pregnant. Or I'm sure you know people who have been pregnant, um, even if you've never been yourself or you never plan to. It's just that there is such um, there is such a fear around pregnancy in our culture. And so much of the advice pregnant women get around food is what to avoid. Really, that's really what the focus is, what you should not eat. Ooh, now that you're pregnant, you can't have a lot of raw things and you can't have this, you can't have that. And, you know, the number of things I would look up on the internet, like on my phone. Can I eat, like, can I eat X in pregnancy? And and I think any, <clears throat> any woman who's been pregnant will tell you the exact same experience. So in our culture, pregnancy has become this really medical thing. It's become this thing that's kind of rife with menace. You know, you could be taking, um, you could be making a bad decision at any given moment Or it's also that, you know, since so many of us are having kids later in life, you know, of course, we're reminded how much higher our risks are for the pregnancy, for the baby, etc. So there's this whole atmosphere of fear and risk um, around something that's actually one of the most natural events in the world. I mean, think about it, everyone who's ever walked the earth until now is a product of a pregnancy, right? And yet, when you're pregnant, you feel like it's this incredibly special um, situation, you know, special in a good way, but special also in a bad way. And like, oh my God, there are triggers everywhere. You should, you need to be, you know, you need to be paying attention. You need to be vigilant. And so that's something I would say that's definitely not conducive to a very um, relaxed pregnancy. And of course, there was so much other noise as well, like how to give birth. Like like I said, it's become so medical these days. And, you know, there was a time in the 20th century when births were very specifically taken out of, out of midwives and homes and put into the hospital and into doctors' hands. And this was a very, you know, this move definitely had a lot of impact and a lot of negative impact, unfortunately um i will not get into that here that is not really the discussion here i personally gave birth also in medical settings i chose i made an effort to choose a team that was really respectful of physiological birth and my pregnancies were followed just by um a midwife my my midwife but um but yeah i did do that compromise between something a little medical and something more natural so i'm saying what everything i say here today actually i should probably make that disclaimer none of it is meant to pass judgment on anybody's choices. I'm just talking about my experience of having kind of questioned everything when I became pregnant, and not just around pregnancy, as you will see, but everything around the way we live today. And of course, there's so much other, you know, um, what I call noise around how to bring up your baby, the big sleep issue. I mean, that's another big one for parents, right? And all the books and experts and all the ink spilled around sleep training your baby. That just was such a big deal. Um of course all the stuff, all the stuff, all the baby stuff they tell you you need. And just in case someone who's pregnant is listening to this or you want to have kids in the future, let me just tell you <laughs> right off the bat, you actually need very, very little buy as little as possible. You know, you can also buy things used. You can have hand-me-downs. If something's really important to you, it's not like once you have a baby, you will no longer be able to go out and get your needs met. So definitely don't freak out. Your baby doesn't, actually, your baby doesn't even need a room. Nobody tells you this either. Like that's become such a part of our cultural understanding of, of these things. Like, oh, new parents, of course, baby coming. And, you know, you have a pastel colored room and you paint it and you decorate it and all that good stuff. I mean baby doesn't need any of that for actually a quite a quite a long time after after birth. <laughs> you know, but no one tells you this. So <clears throat> so I'm taking it upon myself to tell you. And not to mention so much of the stuff that you're bringing into your home and bringing into your baby's space is actually there are a lot of toxic materials. And I remember going into the rabbit hole for hours and hours trying to um, research non-toxic alternatives. So, of course, you know, and then everything around how to feed baby, how to introduce solids, how long you should be breastfeeding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are a whole bunch of notions around there, too, that, you know, that we can kind of question the modern way of doing things. But let me take a step back for a minute, go back to what I discovered around, um, you know, pregnancy and nutrition and even preconception and nutrition. Basically, what I realized is that by focusing on only what pregnant women should avoid, our culture is doing such a disservice to future generations. And here is what I mean: I had mentioned to you before in the past that, unfortunately, in our modern day, so many of us are undernourished, and it's exactly because of this kind of um, this kind of approach. Because our culture does not focus on what we should eat, what we should include in our diets to be healthy to be vibrant and to be, you know, robust individuals. And actually what I as I discovered this stuff as I started to research this stuff, I realized so it's not even just actually what you eat during pregnancy, what you eat before even becoming pregnant is super important. And at that point for me also it was like oops. <laughs> um the, like the only thing I'd heard of was if you ever plan on becoming pregnant in the near future, you need to be taking folic acid supplements. That was literally the extent of my knowledge. And also, which I realized looking back, that that was actually even not such sound advice. Because first of all, folic acid is um, um, it's an artificial uh, product. It needs to be like natural folate. And of course, that's best had from foods, et cetera, et cetera. And even like breastfeeding, <laughs> you might be surprised to hear me say this, but before I became pregnant, I did not even have like a very well-defined philosophy around breastfeeding or anything like that. Just imagine me, like, actually not having an opinion on something. It's really funny. Um, But, you know, that's the way things were before becoming a mother. And so, basically what I realized as I got into all this stuff and all the research was that we were doing things a certain way in our modern world, but that was actually a very recent way of doing things. Um and actually what we what wasn't being said was that the nutrition of mom like even the dad of course before conception like the nutrition of the parents it went way beyond having a like a baby quote unquote healthy baby with 10 fingers and 10 toes actually our nutrition would determine would impact the lifelong health of that baby so not just you know what happens in childhood or babyhood, but actually their lifelong health. And there are some studies about this, you know, that got me, um, that that really fascinated me at the time. So when it comes to eating well to support a healthy pregnancy, healthy postpartum, a healthy baby, you actually don't even have to look that far back in human history. Now, I've been telling you all about the evolutionary mismatch, right, in the past few episodes. Um, But when you want to understand, like, how to eat in a way that we're more adapted to and that is actually better for our physiology, you don't have to go that far because really it's only in the last few generations that we have really particularly lost our way and we can get clues from um, from our not too distant past. So one person who really influenced me around all of this stuff when I was getting into researching this was um, someone named Weston A. Price. He was a dentist who lived in the earlier part of the 20th century in the U.S. And what he was noticing was that the kids that were coming through his practice, their health, their dental health and dental development were getting worse and worsened with each generation. So he basically decided to undertake a really ambitious work of what I would call nutritional anthropology. And he went to really remote corners of the world. He visited almost all the inhabited continents to look for people who were yet untouched by civilization and what he called its modern convenience foods, and just to take a look at how they were doing. Now, I'm not going to get too into his work in this podcast, but I do have... um, articles about it in my on my blog that I'm going to post in the show notes if you want to know more it really is fascinating but basically what he found was that in every place he went he met people who were really robust really well built and had perfect teeth perfect dental arches now i also want to point out to you that these people are not really they did not have access to any of the modern Dental hygiene and dental modern dental practices that we have today. So, this is another way in which our culture is a little bit of you know a, a little bit insincere when it think when it makes us believe that if you do all these things, then you are gonna have healthy teeth. That's like it's like um, actually no, people have not had all these things, all these products um, before, and they had actually perfectly, if not better, teeth than we do today. So this was really fascinating, and of course, I was like, okay, <laughs> you know all the things that they don't tell you. And so here's the really important thing that he discovered. Now, all these people were already eating in a way that was so much more nutritious than the modern diets, even back in the 1930s, okay? It's gotten only worse since then. And yet, even these people went to great lengths to make sure to procure special fertility foods. When it was time for a couple to get married to start having children, they took that seriously. First of all, they weren't just able to um, conceive of a baby just like that. They prepared. Both both parents prepared, and these foods, of course, depending on where he was in the world, there were so many. There was so much diversity, right? Somebody, what somebody does in the Canadian Arctic is not what they do in um, in a you know in an African tribe, but there were commonalities. And of course, you know, as you can imagine, none of the foods were processed foods. They were as close to their natural state as possible. And maybe the most important thing, especially from the fertility um, point of view, was that a lot of these special foods were actually animal foods. So he realized that, okay, like there are some protective factors that these Um, diets are providing that are creating these really robust outcomes so this is really this was very eye-opening for me and um and i didn't eat exactly as there's a western price foundation now i have to say like i'm not very into the foundation's work these days but i was very influenced if you go back to the original material from western price it really is really fascinating and um but i think it is very there is some really good advice in there about um how how to be eating not not just for pregnant women or even women trying to conceive or parents trying to conceive but for really everybody so what basically all of this made me realize beyond just the baby aspect of it is that like i realized what i didn't have growing up right i mean i ate pretty much a real food diet and you know our food in turkey in the 70s and 80s wasn't really as processed as it is today, but still, like we didn't necessarily have all of those uh, nutritional factors that he was talking about that those indigenous and traditional cultures had. So, what I like, what I did is that I completely changed my focus around, you know, nutrition and pregnancy and health around this time and. I became a lot more proactive about it. I was like, what we need to be talking about is what to include in the diet that is going to make sure that the mom is healthy, the baby is healthy, and the future generations are healthy, as opposed to only talking about, oh, you're pregnant, you better be avoiding oysters, you know, that sort of thing. You know, obviously that information is out there that we need that information too. But when that becomes the only focus, and let's, I mean, let's face it, women are already getting this message all their lives, you know, be careful what you eat, don't eat too much, avoid this, avoid that. So already our whole um, approach to food is based on this notion of deprivation. And so when it comes to making babies, hello, like that's taking such a huge toll on our bodies. And not to mention kind of robbing, you know, like I said, our children, of their right to having robust bodies, well-built bodies. So this is the whole part around nutrition and food that really marked me around this time. But there is maybe something like not more important, but just as important as this aspect. And that is um, the whole bit around you know, human health, like human happiness, and all the emotional aspects that go into, um, you know, becoming a parent and raising babies. Now, I read the book, The Continuum Concept, when my younger son was just a few months old. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, where has this book been all my life? And why could someone not have like grabbed me during my first pregnancy and tell me that I absolutely had to read it? Now this is a book. Today I recommend all expecting parents that I know. Um, actually, I would even recommend it before anything. Before you read anything about nutrition. And um, But I I actually think it's essential reading, really, for any human, because if anything, even if you don't want to have babies, you have been a baby yourself, so it's so important to know where we come from. So the book is called The Continuum Concept, and The Continuum is basically, and if you've heard my previous episodes, you will kind of understand this notion, you know, the way we've been talking about how humans... We used to do things for millions of years until just the last, you know, 10,000 years, basically. Um, so the continuum is that, like the continuum can be described as the, that way we have lived for millions of years and that way that really met all of our needs. But in the last few thousand years, with the onset of civilization, we have basically broken that continuum. And we have severed our ties to our deep intuition. And we basically gave up all authority to our intellect. And now the point that this book makes is that our intellect, like while it's an incredible servant, an excellent servant, it makes for a very poor master. And so basically what happens is as a result is that happiness becomes a goal instead of a normal condition of being alive. Remember that basic package that I'm always talking about. Now the author um came to all these conclusions. Her name is Jean Lidloff, an American, she actually found herself through a very unlikely chain of events, um, spending time in the South American jungle, I think in the 1950s and 60s. And she spent some time with the Yequana people in uh, um, in Venezuela. And basically, these people had have had the same lifestyle for many, many millennia. And her time with them really just turned all of her preconceived notions as a civilized woman on their head. And she went there like I said it was like it was like basically she followed some people on their adventures. She wasn't like an anthropologist. She didn't go there with any kind of agenda of observing them, learning anything or anything like that. She just kind of went there, she lived with them, and over time what she saw really surprised her. Basically, she she started to really see through her own assumptions, her own modern assumptions, for example, about what happiness is and the notion of work versus leisure she saw that these people when they had to do what she saw as hard work they were just as jovial and fun and you know just joking with each other and in a in a good mood and relaxed as if they were just hanging around doing nothing she realized like even the way we think about like toil versus leisure and you know work versus rest this distinction did not exist for them things around justice for example everybody absolutely having to put in their part and pulling their own weight like she witnessed a family um really kind of adopting taking under their wing this man i think he was somebody's brother who for years did, n- did nothing to contribute to the family did not garden did not produce anything did not do anything and they were like they were fine with that like it, it was like all these things we think about in our modern day as being you know, essential parts of being a civilized human being, they didn't necessarily have that. And yet, they were perfectly equanimous people, perfectly happy, relaxed, and mature. So, and of course, like the one part where she was really completely taken aback by the the contrast between the way they lived and the way we do things in our modern day was around babies and child child rearing. And this is is actually where the book focuses on. So what she noticed is that when a baby is born to that society, it's in constant contact with an adult, usually skin on skin, from the moment um, of birth. So this baby has lots of excitement built in, in the form of being a part of the mother's life but the mother is not like an isolated you know um no one you know like uh, just in her sitting in her hut and not doing anything she's actually going about her own business her baby is not her main focus of attention she's going about her business the baby is attached to her and the baby is having like the right of her life like she's super excited she's um you know, she's being uh, exposed to all the natural elements, you know of hot and cold and dark and light. and you know they cross a river sometimes like a river that that, that runs pretty strong, like the where the current is really strong and and she's being bathed in the running water, like the, the, the wet and the and the and the dry. and all of these um sensations, like this baby's like really having her fill of all these sensations while she's safely attached to her mother. So do you see that? Like, there's that element of risk and excitement, but you don't, she's not really feeling at risk. She's not being left alone. So she gets to really experience all of this from the safety of her cocoon. So for the author, like what she realized is that these are really essential sensory and affectionate experiences that a proper childhood must have. And of course, the mother is a is part of a strong community, and she's like I said, is not isolated. And you know, she's really just going about her life, and the baby is just tagging along. And that was, that is, of course, in huge contrast to our modern day of you know, if you want to spend more time with your baby, if you don't want to go back to work right away, you are so isolated. You're isolated in, inside four walls. It's inert. It's basically lifeless, you know, and, and you have all these like toys and baubles and plastic things and jingles and like all these things that are trying to mimic the real thing. But they are so sadly not the real thing. And so in some ways, our babies get overstimulated in these really artificial ways, and yet completely understimulated in ways that they should. So the problem with this scenario is that it really doesn't serve either party. This doesn't serve the baby nor the mother, because they're they're both cut off from that continuum experience. And another thing that really struck me, reading this book, was how um, in in a traditional indigenous society, the mother is completely benevolent towards her child and she has this expectation that her child is inherently sociable and she will grow up that way. And this is, again, in really stark contrast to the way we see children today. I mean, think about, like, of course, these societies, like you don't have toddler, like, you know, like the... um, the terrible twos and the toddler tantrums and things like that. You just don't have those things. Or even babies that cry for hours and hours, you don't have that. And I think that's even what first tipped her off to focusing on this, um, the author. She was like, why do these babies not cry? <laughs> and they're actually even doing, and this is the other thing, the autonomy given to young children. Like they would do things that we would consider to be very dangerous. But because of their context, the the kids really learned Um, to manage themselves and regulate themselves in a very efficient, sufficient way. And of course, when it comes to the sociability of babies and children and human beings, when you expect that human beings are inherently good, inherently sociable, inherently cooperative, then that expectation actually creates children and human beings that have those qualities as opposed to what we think of it today. We really think of our little kids as being barbarians, uncivilized, and we need to kind of beat them into submission. They're just waiting to be educated. They're just waiting to be brought into the fold, as opposed to they are actually already perfect in their intuition, if anything, is much more intact than ours, having grown up in this society, and maybe they have things to teach us. And I, I think the biggest question that this mentality invites is, you know, what if our babies are right? And what if they can grow up in a way where they, they feel 100% confident that they belong? Just think about that. Just think about growing up with that, with that expectation. And when you have that expectation, it just gets fulfilled, right? So, Reading this book, when I did, I was like, oh my God. And I felt, of course, I had like such a rush of regret over some of the things I had done that I judged myself and it was so terrible. And so this is why why I also want to say this part, because I mean, until very, very recently, I've actually still been processing some of this stuff, especially compared to how I did things with my first kid. You know, I was familiar with the principles of attachment parenting and I was on board with that but I think there was something about it that hadn't gone deep enough for me and there are still things that I kind of let let's say modern culture whisper in my ear and I let myself kind of get influenced by that stuff so what I'm what I want to say is that I think it's never too late to know about these things and it's never too late to correct some of our misunderstandings as long as we can feel like we have our own back and that there is actually no room for regrets. It's really not a useful emotion. We're all on our journey, and our kids are also on their own journey. And I think that you know, recognizing that the civilization in which we live today is inherently traumatic, does not make me a pessimist, like a pessimistic person. I think it's the contrary. I feel like human beings are infinitely um, capable of change we are malleable, our brains are plastic. If anything, the latest um, research in neuroscience is you know, basically showing us this more and more. We can change, we have the capacity to change. So even if we didn't do everything right in early childhood, even if we ourselves personally didn't have everything right in early childhood, I mean, God knows few of us have had everything right in early childhood, just knowing that tools exist and that we do have that inner Capacity for healing and growth and change. To me, that is like that is so worth celebrating. And I hope that I have been able to invite you today to ask these kinds of questions. As I told you before, I don't claim to have all the answers but I'm just inviting you to look at it a little differently. I'm inviting you to ask these questions a little differently. And I think that when we think about the continuum experience, we also have a whole new understanding of mental health today. We understand that when we have responses like, um, you know, anxiety and overwhelm and depression and, and everything that runs the gamut, we realize like, wait a second, those are actually normal. Those are normal responses to a broken continuum experience. And that allows us to have so much more compassion, both for ourselves and for those that we, that we, that we see suffer, that it's not our fault. It has just been set up in a way that the whole thing's kind of based on a misunderstanding. And again, my aim here is to keep asking those questions and correcting those misunderstandings just one at a time. Have a wonderful day, my friends. I will talk to you next time. Thank you for being here. Hey, come join us in our private Facebook group, Redefining the Good Life, where we continue the conversation about just what it means to have a meaningful life today. See you there.